Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 176 of the Sustainable-ish podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, and apologies, this episode is going out a day later than usual, uh, just because I've been a bit swamped, really. The last couple of weeks have absolutely run away with me, and yesterday I had an absolute whopper of a headache, um, and decided that getting the podcast out on time probably wasn't the biggest thing to be stressing about in the great scheme of things. So apologies if uh, I'm not sure that anybody does hang on for it to be dropped on a Friday. Um, But if you were that person, then apologies for that. Um, I guess it's obligatory now to ask how you're getting on with your Christmas. Are you ready for Christmas? All those kinds of questions. If you're starting to feel the stress, if you're starting to feel like it's running away with you again and you're heading for a lot more waste, a lot more um, expense maybe than you want, uh, which I think is what we can all fall into. Do check out the Crap Free Christmas course. I don't think it's too late to make some small changes uh, this year, so do check that out. Uh, I will pop a link to that in the show notes. It is absolutely jammed with resources and links and Uh, There's a downloadable workbook to help you get organised and there's also a brilliant support group on Facebook uh, to help hold your hand when you have some of those perhaps more challenging conversations um, and to uh, help inspire you with ideas for a Christmas with a little bit less waste, hopefully a little bit less stress, hopefully a little bit less expense and a little bit less impact on the planet as well. So as I said, I will pop a link to that in the show notes. Do check it out if you think it is something that would be helpful. Okay, so today's episode, uh, advertising or actually bad advertising. So advertising is all around us, isn't it? It's persuading us to buy stuff we didn't even know we wanted most of the time, telling us how much happier we'll be, how much more popular, how much better our lives will be with the latest or newest version of whatever it is. And most of us think we're pretty immune to it, but studies show just how insidious and manipulative it is and how it influences our brains at really quite a deep level, which perhaps wouldn't really matter if we weren't in the grips of a climate and an ecological emergency and that is actually being driven by our consumption of the very stuff that's being advertised to us. So today's guest is Leo Murray. He is the co-founder and director of innovation. I love that as a job uh, a job title. Director of innovation at the climate charity Possible. And he is the co-author of a book called Badvertising that is raising the alarm on an industry that is making us both unhealthy and unhappy and that is driving the planet to the precipice of environmental collapse in the process. I have to confess, I've only read the first chapter of the book. Uh, I just haven't, um, I've only had it about a week. Uh, but already it's massively eye-opening and shocking. And Jeremy Vine, who's a Radio 2 presenter, his review of the book says, if you thought your brain was being gently warmed by the advertising industry, read this book and you'll realise it's being fried. My goodness me. So Leo is absolutely amazing and there is so much stuff that I wanted to chat to him about, as you can probably tell from this interview. So we veered from chatting about some of the amazing work that Possible is doing to advertising and back again. So apologies in advance for my poor um, interviewing skills and my inability to keep on track, but I hope that you will find all of it, uh, including the book stuff, which is absolutely fascinating, really interesting stuff. 
do let me know your thoughts on this one. Uh, I will be back uh, as usual after the interview with this week's good news. But in the meantime, enjoy. Hi, Leo. Welcome to Sustainable-ish. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, I um, will confess to having a bit of a fangirl moment. I've been uh, following you, which always sounds really obsessive stalker behaviour, doesn't it? On on Twitter or whatever we're supposed to call it now for a very long time. And I was a big fan of 1010 and they're now possible. And so, um, yes, very honoured to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Oh, that is sweet of you to say. No, it's great. It's great to be here. Um, so for people who haven't been obsessively stalking you for the last 10 years, can you <laughs> let people know who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I am I'm a co-founder and currently director of innovation and engagement at the climate charity Possible. And Possible, we we were originally the 1010 campaign for 10% emissions cuts in 2010. And um we persisted after that because there was a bit of a gap, I suppose, in the market uh for positive and upbeat climate change campaigning, practical stuff people could just get their teeth into. Um, there isn't, you know, signing online petitions or going on marches, which, you know, is a fairly limited repertoire of things. And then they're, they're being the opposite end of the to spectrum, do. really, aren't they? Yes, exactly. So, you know, which is not to say that there's any, you know, we, we, we don't, those things are necessary. They're just not sufficient, you know, and actually... All of us at different times in our lives need different kinds of motivation, I suppose. And, um, you know, what we try to do at Possible is inspire people to take the courageous action that the climate crisis demands, which is a bit different from, you know, much of environmental campaigning can be a bit, you know, it can be a bit finger waggy. It can be a bit um, and it can be a bit doomy. Mm. There's a lot to there's a lot to be uh, upset about. Um, and angry with governments and big corporations, you know. And of course, that's that's necessary and it's important, but it's also something that is very difficult to sustain over long periods of time. You know, you, you kind of need to also be doing some, just some practical positive things with other people that you can roll up your sleeves and get on with. So that's 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 our kind of, you know, that's what we exist for. That's our raison d'etre. Um, and actually... What we're here to talk about today, advertising, is a slight departure from that because, um, you know, I mean, I could show you a graphic of our theory of change and it actually has this kind of grayed out area underneath, which is things that also need to happen, but which we avoid doing. And one of those is running no campaigns to stop bad things from happening. Right. Um, now, the advertising campaign, which the book is really, you know, has emerged from, is ultimately we are looking for a tobacco style ban on the advertising of fossil fuels and of uh, intrinsically high carbon mm. products and services so that is a no campaign now i, I so, think so, um, you know, the, the no campaign so you've said that that's something that you you normally resist because the is the sort of psychology and that theory of change that people are more likely to move towards something positive like look at all these amazing things that could happen if we get this transition right rather than the you're all gits for doing this and making people feel bad. I mean, yes, but I would just qualify that by saying that actually we need both. Mm. The issue is that environmentalists just tend to gravitate towards the former. So, um, you know, the campaigning environment is replete with uh, demands for 
bad things to stop happening, mm-hmm. basically. And that is most of the content. That's most of what is out there um, in terms of things you can get involved with. And of course, you know, it's actually, it can be quite difficult sometimes to square a positive and constructive, um, you know, mindset mm-hmm. with meaningful action to address the climate crisis because ultimately it's about not burning fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. That's what we've got to do is stop burning fossil fuels. So, so fundamentally it is about stopping doing things. It's stopping emitting stuff into the into the atmosphere. And um, most of that is about, is about burning fossil fuels. So sometimes it can be an awkward line to walk. And I think, you know, when it comes to the baptizing work, the, you know, where it fits is, is this. I mean, I frequently hear people who are involved in more of the kind of in, insider type thing, like the clean creatives, purpose disruptors, other people who are active on, on this frontier, you know, where climate change meets the advertising industry. I frequently hear them repeating this stat that we, the environmental movement, are being outspent by the oil and gas industry um, by about 38 to 1 when it comes to advertising spending. Now, um, so my, when I hear that, I, I, I think, well, clearly there's absolutely no prospect of us matching that level of spending. That's not going to happen, right? This is existential for them and they've got all the money for every pound spent on pro-environmental um, messaging pro-climate yeah. messaging you know so pounds is spent on... yeah exactly wow. and so you can see there, there's no prospect that's not feasible right as a, as a goal well, that's not going to happen you know they've got all the money uh because they're the historical incumbents and it's uh, existential for them so of course they're going to they're going to increase that differential is only going to rise actually um so when I hear that, I think, well, there's an obvious solution here, isn't there? Which is um, actually they need to be prohibited from doing that because the, the the stuff that is coming out of the industry is fundamentally propaganda. It's propaganda for a way of life that is going to make the planet uninhabitable for future generations. And, you know, not far future generations either. We're talking about our own kids here. You know, yeah. I've got two kids. Um, so the allowing them to just continue to spend these vast sums on propping up a status quo that is rapidly making the the earth uninhabitable uh for human civilization it is it's 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 when you're in a hole stop digging right that's fundamentally it and um this this is the easy stuff right so i've been working for a long time now you know even since before we started 1010, you know, I've been working on, well, how do you get people to, uh, to change their behaviours in the way that, um, in the way that is required to meet these climate change goals? And in some cases, um, there's a very good and indeed uh, better in all sorts of different ways, technological alternative. And here I'm thinking about renewable energy, right? Yeah. So, so solar and wind have won and they're now cheaper just in straightforward financial terms, cheaper than fossil fuels mm. to generate electricity. That's fantastic. Unfortunately, not every aspect of this challenge has such an easy, you know, just drop-in solution. Um, and for some of the things that some people, and I have to say it is a small proportion of the global population that is responsible for most of the consumption emissions, um, we become accustomed to doing things like frequent flying, driving ever larger cars, mm. eating enormous quantities of red meat. 
Those are things which are quite rare in the global population, but have become commonplace in yeah. the global 10%. And um, the, those are things which there is no uh, technological alternative for, you know, regardless of the fact that Virgin just flew a flight with 100% sustainable aviation fuels, or as they call it. Air uh, quotes, sustainable, sustainable aviation, aviation fuels. <laughs> yes, air quotes, exactly. Um, there is no prospect of technological solutions, techno fixes to air travel materializing at this scale and speed that would be meaningful for society's efforts to tackle the climate crisis. So we, we they, they're going to make very small contributions is what I'm saying yeah. to emissions reduction in that sector. The big thing, the, thing, the only thing that we actually can be really confident works is people flying less. Now that is an easier problem than it is typically characterized by the industry because in fact, most flights are taken by a very, very small share of the global population. And even in the UK, which people in the UK fly more internationally than the people of any other nation, um, post-colonial, you know, we're a rich country, we're an island nation. There's lots of reasons for it, diaspora communities, et cetera. Um, but half the population don't take any flights in a given I was going to say, because so um, this is this is one of the things, and I think this is a report that, that Possible did recently, isn't it? Looking yeah. into the, because the perception certainly amongst my peers is everybody flies and yes. you know we're making a real I say effort it's just that makes it sound much harder work than it actually is it's not that hard just to stay in the country or to take a train somewhere else um uh you know as a family I'm um you know battling against other members of the family who perhaps would like to fly and I'm saying look we really would need to try and stop flying or not fly um and and but when you see everybody's Facebook post and you see everybody's Instagram posts and sharing their holidays it feels like everybody flies and my kids will come home from school and say so and so has been here and so and so has been there and why yeah. can't we and um but actually there was there was a, a really interesting well there was lots of interesting statistics in in that report from Possible but as you said is it is it in any given year less than 50 percent of the population fly is that yeah the... And that's been consistently true for a long, long time. So you often hear sort of low-cost carriers uh, like to describe themselves as democratising air travel. But when you actually look at what what happened, yes, it did broaden out the base of people, the, the, the demographics that are taking part in air travel, but only by a bit. Most of the increase in flying was by people who already flew, flying yeah. a lot. So we talk about people in our kind of social stratum buying second homes abroad. Because yeah. air travel is artificially inexpensive, and mm. so you know now they do twelve flights a year to Tuscany, whatever. So and and globally, um, in terms of the percentage of people flying, I've I've read sort of different stats varying from ten percent to twenty percent of of people globally will ever fly, and I don't know if you've got yeah. anything more accurate than that, but and and this, so no, this... that's about right. So you know, one it's only about only only about one in ten people set so, um, you know, give or take. You know, I had a situation over the summer where I was talking to um, a, a parent of, um, you know, the, the one of my son's friends and, and you know, what are you doing for holiday, for on holiday? And I, I said what we were doing. And I said, oh, I said, we, we try not to. And I was like, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to have a climate conversation. I said, we try not to fly. I said, I, I can't cope with the, the climate guilt. And then I got that. Oh, it's only, you know, two and a half, five percent of um, emissions. And I and I tried in a very non-judgmental way to say yes but as a proportion of your, yeah, of your it will be huge 
and it's having a massively disproportionate impact on people in the global south who will never set foot on a plane now i don't know how you can say that in a non non-judgmental non-preachy way but no it's very difficult um, it's very difficult so look you know 15 15 of the uk population take about 70 percent of all the flights and at a global level one percent of the global population is responsible for about half all of the aviation emissions wow. right so you can see it, it's the most disproportionately it's the biggest kind of injustice when it comes to emissions because the people who are in the frequent flyer group are people at the top of the income spectrum even in their countries Mm. in in, in developed nations so um how can you do this in a non-judgy way well it's very difficult is the is this is the short answer you know our our solution for this in terms of a sort of policies you know what is it that we need to do then to reduce emissions in a fair way is a frequent flyer level yes and that idea is very widely supported by the public because you can see that if your challenge is we've got to do less in aggregate consumption for this uh service needs to go down then the fairest way to do that is for the people who do the most of it to cut back first. And that is also, you know, in terms of the social value of trips that people make, you know, I try to avoid kind of, um, you know, being the arbiter of what is and isn't a legitimate flight, but the flights that people rarely take tend to be the ones that matter the most to them. And there are, um, you know, there's an academic study by uh, an academic in Sweden looking at, um, frequent flyers, young people who are frequent flyers, half they reported themselves that half of the flights they take are quote unquote unimportant. Wow. Um, and so this is actually a good work. This is a good in to talking about uh, baptizing because the so frequent flyer levy is changing the fiscal framework, uh, the, you know, the choice architecture that is around air travel, which at the moment, because we don't tax kerosene, there's no VAT on plane tickets, planes. You know, alongside wheelchairs, baby clothes, right? That sort of thing. I mean, there was full VAT on sanitary products for many years while you could get on a flight for absolutely no VAT. And um, so, so frequent flyer levy will change that, but there are other things we can do as well. I know it was a, um, I think I'm right in saying it was one of the recommendations of the Citizen Climate Assembly was the, to the yeah. government was it was a frequent flyer levy. And I know, um, I think, have you guys got a petition around it? And, you know, um, yeah, we've got a right to MP action, you know, which you can find on our website, just write to your MP and say you support it because um, it's got less support amongst uh, parliamentarians than it does amongst the British public, substantially less. And, you you know, you can speculate as to why. Yeah. Uh, I, what I would say is, you know, so the Citizens Assembly supported it, but it's also been, it's received a tacit endorsement of the government statutory advisors on the climate crisis, uh, the, the Climate Change Committee, yeah. consistently public polling shows that it is widely supportive. Um, so some Demos work uh, has, has shown us Ipsos Mori. And, um, you know, again and again, when you ask the public about this, it's got very widespread support from the public and it has support from the policy community. Mm. Almost feels like a no-brainer and potentially the, that we can, as you said, we can speculate as to, as to why MPs aren't, um, uh, aren't keen on it whether that's because they take a lot of flights or there's a lot of lobbying from the aviation industry all those sorts of things but like how likely or otherwise is is that to happen do you think or do you have a sense of 
Yeah, well, look, I feel like this is, you know, this is a slight tangent, Jen, but yeah, essentially... Yeah, I know, sorry. It, it's an inevitability, right? And um, that is to say, it's an inevitability if we are going to choose to actually try to meet the climate change targets yeah. that we have set ourselves. So, you know, we, we can't achieve our net zero goals. And the, the Climate Change Committee has been saying this for many, many years, over a decade, have said to successive governments, mm, you're going to need a demand management policy framework because uh, you can't just bet on a herd of unicorns. Yeah, showing up yeah, yeah. um and the government has said no 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 the unicorns are coming <laughs> and that is basically the current position so we have a thing the jet zero strategy which is the current official position of the government which is that all the projected increase in demand for flights between now and 2050 can be met at the same time as emissions from air travel falling very substantially and of course there's, there is no, the evidence is not there to support that. It's essentially a work of fiction. And mm. we recently did a very, very meaty piece of analysis with Chatham House, um, who unpicked the Jet Zero strategy, went back to first principles, ran the numbers again, using more realistic assumptions. And their conclusion is demand will need to fall by about a third between now and 2030. Wow. Right. So the number of flights being taken from UK airports has to go down by about a third. This is why possible is judicially reviewing the government's jet zero strategy and we will get our time in court probably uh, next spring or early summer. Um, so judicially reviewing, that means you're legally challenging it? We're legally challenging the process by which it's written because that's how judicial review works. Okay. But essentially, um, the challenge is, it hinges on lots of things. I won't go into too much detail, but fundamentally, ministers ruled out in advance doing any demand management policy. So not, you know, they were like, no, we are not going to do this. So they've just told civil servants, make the numbers work. But of course, that means that then they've just had to dial up uh, various things to levels that aren't su substantiated in any yeah. way. So, you know, they assume that energy efficiency will improve in the aviation fleet um, by about 2% per year um, during the whole period. Now, Historically, it's been improving at one percent per year. Okay, Actually, and even even the two percent, two percent per year doesn't get us to that thirty percent reduction, does it? No, um, of course it doesn't. And you know, there's all sorts of things in it in it which are which are just um, wildly implausible. And that's the conclusion of the Chatham House report: is this is a very high risk strategy, and that's also the language mm. that's used by the CCC. They say essentially we don't expect to see these these this stuff actually materialise. So you know, so SAF at, at enormous scales that would entail you know you'd have to be making a new SAF refinery sustainable, so SAF aviation, is that fuel sustainable refinery aviation fuel is that yes and and yes. I I was um because I, I think I saw that um you know news piece that you referred to about this uh first flight on on 100% sustainable yeah. aviation fuel and and the sustainable is in air quotes because isn't it still it's only 70% fuel I say only that still seems quite it's 70% fewer emissions than traditional aviation fuel but still got kerosene and it's it, yes it's so it's 70 percent less carbon emissions but um the climate impact of air travel is about two to three times that of the carbon emissions alone because of the fact that it is emitted into the upper atmosphere where it has additional warming effects and so there is no difference to the exhaust emissions from the planet. right um no meaningful you know it's the life cycle emissions which yeah. are lower 70 percent is probably an overstatement um you know their mechanism will allow anything over about 40 percent life cycle oh, okay. emission savings and of course the feedstock for this particular flight comes from waste uh, cooking oil which there is just very little of 
Yes. Um, so, you know, the idea that that's possibly scalable is just uh, is laughable. Um, so, you know, it's much more, the point of flights like that are to give the impression to the public that this problem can be solved. They're, they're not actually good faith, um, you know, advances yeah. in a journey to solve it. They, 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 it's, it's hype, basically. Yeah. Um, with respect to advertising, this is the easiest place to start. So okay. if we're talking about, if we're looking at this from the perspective of consumers or citizens, you know, people, for people, the best place, the easiest place, the lowest regrets option is to stop advertising this service. Because if your mum lives overseas and you see her once a year, you're going to continue to do that. Yeah. You know, if you've got family you need to see overseas, you don't need to be advertised. Right, yes, yes, yes. To yes. do that, right? Even if your business, you know, requires that you have a face-to-face -face meeting with somebody in another country, that is, that's, advertising plays no role in mm. fulfilling that need, right? Advertising is precisely, it exists to stimulate exactly that portion of demand for these products that is excess, that mm. is surplus to requirement, that would not have taken place if it were not for the advertising. That's what these companies are paying for when they pay for advertising. So that's not to say that it's the easiest or simplest option um, if you're thinking about other economic actors, but for the wider public and meeting, you know, rising to this challenge of, well, collectively, we've got to do less of this stuff. Yeah. The thing that literally nobody will notice will make no difference at all to people's quality of life is to stop having these things advertised at them. Because the flights that they then go on to not take will not be flights that they miss. That they were going to take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so this is this is why, you know, this is why we think that this as an approach is it, it's kind of it will signal that we as a society have reached a level of maturity in relation to this problem. Yeah. Um, that that we've actually we've crossed the threshold of being real with ourselves about what is going to be required to meet it. You know, until we've stopped literally allowing high carbon industries to spend billions of pounds on stimulating demand for their products and services, mm. well, as long as we're continuing to allow them to do that. You know, public information campaigns um, by the government to get people to cut their emissions or, or indeed from charities like mine, possible, um, it's a drop in the ocean. Yeah. You know, you're talking about tiny, tiny sums of money relative to the money that is being spent on telling us to do the opposite of those things. And so it also this is... comes to that sort of social license part, doesn't it? Like it is now, yes, exactly. I think, and, and you referenced this, I, I have to confess, I've only, I've only read the book, only arrived yesterday, so I've only read like the first chapter, but <laughs> okay. um, the... The, the sort of parallels with the tobacco industry and how I remember growing They're up, uncanny. it was completely acceptable to, for there to be yes. billboards advertising fags, for them to be on the yeah. side of the football hoardings. Like it was just the norm. And now that social license almost is like, why would we want that promoted to our children? Why would we want that to be, um, you know, something that we're, we're promoting when we know of all the damage that it's causing? And it's so similar, isn't it? It is absolutely uncanny. I mean, it's one of the most interesting chapters, I think, or it was to, to research. And I must thank my colleague, David Boyle, who did much of the legwork there. Um, 
because the, the the parallels genuinely are just uncanny. You're talking about you've got an industry that is selling a harmful product that it knows is harmful um, to the people that buy it, but also to wider society, uh, but then covers up this fact. So when it discovers that it's selling something that is, has potentially lethal consequences, um, in, instead of being open about that, they then spend lots of money on trying to cover it up, keep it from the public for as long as possible, and literally fund, um, you know, the tobacco industry paid young doctors to, mm. to smoke pu publicly, right? Um, you know, in order to reassure the public that it was okay to do it. And the fossil, and the fossil fuel companies have, have employed the same scientists who tried to sort of spread this information around tobacco, haven't the they? It's the same organisations. <laughs> so the Institute for Economic Affairs, who are co frequent commentators on the BBC and so on, you know, they're, they're the people credited with the success of Liz Truss uh, prime ministership, right? <laughs> you know, what she did was she she put all of their policies into play. Mm. <laughs> and um, But the Institute for Economic Affairs, you know, they've been around for a long time. They were funded by the tobacco industry mm. for decades, and uh, they are now heavily funded by the fossil fuel industry to spread this information and uh, to campaign against things which would reduce demand for fossil fuels. So the IEA have been very vocal against high-speed rail in the UK, for instance, you know. And they're being paid to mm. do that um, because it's serving the interests of this very pathological industry. And um, so the, the parallels genuinely, I mean, there's divestment is even in it, right? So the BMA had um, started to uh, speak out against um, tobacco advertising. And then it was discovered that the BMA had a load of their own pension money was in tobacco companies. Oh, really? And, they were quite shirty about it to begin with, but um, you know, then eventually they, they divested. And we've had a very similar situation with Church of England today. Um, who were like, no, these two things are like unconnected. But of course they're connected. Um, but uh, I mean, also it's striking to note that the Advertising Standards Authority, who are the sort of de facto regulator in the UK, they're not really a proper regulator because they are funded and staffed by aviation um, advertising industry people. Um, they were very, very against the tobacco ad ban. They, okay. they literally said, well, where will it stop? You know, if we ran this, what, what, you know, what else might get banned? Um, I so, thought they were going to come to come to the Advertising Standards Authority and, and their sort of new regulations on greenwashing and things, because that has been quite interesting that there... it's been very very interesting so the same week the book came out last week and um, we got the first ever ruling from the asa uh banning an suv ad on environmental grounds so, now, so the, the um regulation for people who haven't come across it is that it's trying to crack down on on greenwashing so this idea that companies can sort of purport or, or show themselves in a way that makes out that they're much greener than they actually are so um, I think HSBC might have had to take an ad down, haven't they? And, you know, so you're not allowed yeah. to just say you're air quotes sustainable or eco or green without anything to back that up. Yeah, that's right. So, so I mean, there's actually slightly, there's slightly unconnected issues in that, um, well, they're separate and distinct. Uh, the, technically, our advertising codes in the UK, they already include provision for anything which is grossly prejudicial to the protection of the environment. Oh wow! And so, if you were to actually enforce that code in a in an even-handed way, 
Well, you, you wouldn't have any aviation ads at all um, or ads for fossil fuel SUVs. You know, you, they simply would all be banned from the outset. Um, so I think it's worth getting in a little bit to the, you know, the regulatory framework in the UK. It's very, very, it's had a lot in common with many other countries, mo mostly around the world. The aviation industry has successfully persuaded the governments in the markets that it's operating in that it can regulate its own activities. And the government does not need to spend any money doing that. They don't need to worry about it. Don't worry, we've got this. We'll make sure that people are not being misled. And that's mm. generally the basis of the, that's generally the basis of the codes, you know, everywhere you look around the world. So the UK is fairly typical in having a sort of pseudo regulatory body, and that is the Advertising Standards Authority, who exists to police these codes that the industry has nominally signed up to. Um, but there's all sorts of problems with the way that it is designed. So the ASA, for a start, is um, it's reactive. So it, what they don't do is look at every billboard before it gets put up. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they don't look at every advert before it's printed in a national newspaper, right? What they do is they respond to complaints. So if the public, if someone in the public has seen an advert and they don't like it for whatever reason, they can complain to the Advertising Standards Authority and then the, the ASA will then look into it or not, uh, yeah. as, as the case may be. So they have complete discretion about what they choose to investigate and what they choose not to. And of course, they don't have unlimited resources. So they certainly don't look into every complaint that's made, not properly. And you referenced fact, the... It, um... Yes. SUV ad that got that got pulled. Now, I I think there is still a little bit of a gap in people's knowledge of and understanding of the issues around SUVs. Like I I think in the climate space, we're more you know it's being talked about more and more. But I I genuinely think that they're certainly amongst my friends and stuff. They they just wouldn't have clocked the fact that there is an issue with SUVs. Can you just um very briefly explain what the issue is with SUVs well, when it comes to the I... environment? Can I do it briefly, Jen? I'll, listen, I'll, I, I will try. This is one of my pet subjects, you know. Um, so essentially, if you buy a Range Rover, if you buy a new Range Rover tomorrow uh, and you drive it around, it has carbon emissions per kilometre that are equivalent to two and a half average new cars. So it's like driving two and a half cars around yeah. in terms of the impact that it's having on the climate. So um, this autobesity is what it gets called. So this trend towards ever larger yeah. cars um, has been going on for about a decade. And, um, you know, uh, at the start of that period, it was about one in 10 cars and it's now over half. So these new cars sold yeah. uh, fall into this category of SUV. Um, sometimes we get people say, well, you don't know what people, you know, you don't know about people's lives. Uh, they might need to be driving one of these swapping great vehicles. But, you know, our own analysis of where these things are registered shows that um, three quarters of new SUVs are registered to urban addresses. And even of the large SUVs that are typically four wheel drive, so things like a Range Rover, and two thirds of those are registered to urban addresses. And when you look, where are they most popular in yeah. the country? It is indeed Kensington and Chelsea. So the Chelsea tractor prejudice is, because um, in a stereotype, is completely... Correct. It's over a third of new cars bought in Kensington and Chelsea are large SUVs. 
And then most of the other in the top 10, they're mostly wealthy West London boroughs. You know, mm. they're places in Surrey and so on. And, and, and am and I right La- in saying, I can't remember the exact stat, but the the increase in popularity in SUVs has basically cancelled out any sort of energy efficiency savings uh, of um, other models of cars. So two days or not? Yeah, no, including EVs. So this gets quite complicated. But up until very recently, um, although EVs have been bought in large and larger numbers, electric vehicles have been bought in large and larger numbers, and all of the savings from the switch to EVs have been wiped out by the switch to larger and larger uh, diesel fuel cars. And, um, you know, to the extent that the trend towards buying SUVs at the global level has been the second largest uh, source of increases in emissions. Um, and since 2017, so for a long time, the average emissions of a new car sold in the UK and at the European level has been falling. So on an annual basis, it's tended to go down. Now, we've had CO2 regulations in uh, in Europe that have applied to uh car manufacturers um, since the noughties. Mm. And they have driven very substantial reductions in the per mile, like per kilometer uh, emissions, carbon emissions from new cars. And as a consequence, you know, that has been driving a reduction in emissions in the wider fleet. But it began to slow in the mid 2010s and in 2016, it flatlined and began to climb. Mm-hmm. So the average emissions of a new car bought in the UK and at the European level stopped going down in 2016 and started going up. And that is absolutely exclusively driven by the switch to SUVs. And recently, the trend has reversed. And that is because finally, electric vehicles are now accounting for a big enough market share they're taking they're, they're, they're accounting for as enough of the new cars that are bought yeah. to make a dent and in fact emissions from new cars sold in the uk are now falling on an annual basis faster than at any time previously so that is very good news and congratulations to you if you are uh if you you're someone who's contributed to that by buying an ev but and it's a big but. <laughs> there was going to be a partner <laughs> We disaggregated EVs from the picture and we looked at just the emissions from ICE cars, internal mm. combustion engine vehicles, petrol diesel vehicles, and those are still climbing. Mm. So at the national level and at the London level, they've roughly flatlined when they should be going down, but they flatlined. But in places where SUVs are very popular, they are going up. So in Kenneth and Chelsea, they're still climbing. And unfortunately, you know, it would be nice to think that we could just electrify the problem away and, it, and everything would be fine. Of course, that's great for exhaust emissions, for tailpipe emissions. Um, those aren't the only problems that are associated mm-hmm. with driving bigger and bigger cars. And there are all sorts of social and environmental problems um, which are associated with just driving a larger, heavier vehicle. They're much more likely to kill pedestrians, much more, especially children, eight times more likely to kill children. And, um, you know, it was one of the Land Rover Defender 2020 was marketed. I read it. I read the PR, the press release when it when it came out and it was marketed as being able to mount an eight inch curb at 40 miles an hour. Um, Now, the curbs are there to protect people from traffic. And it was a Land Rover Defender that killed those uh, girls in Wimbledon 
mm. um, who were in the school playground. Mm. They weren't even anywhere near the road. Um, so there's all kinds of problems with these cars, but actually, if strictly from a climate perspective, they are no good either. So the International Energy Agency keeps warning that this trend to larger vehicles is actually very problematic for the switch to EVs because yeah. they're much more energy hungry and they're much more resource and material hungry. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're, they're large cars, loads of materials going to make in them. They've got whopping great batteries uh, that are needed to move such a large vehicle around. And that is just reducing the amount of batteries that are available overall for electrifying the wider fleet. So, you know, there was a study from the UK Health Security Agency um, that came out earlier this year, which found that downsizing policies, policies to, to uh, shrink the size of new cars that are being bought could make um, a roughly equivalent contribution to emissions reduction as yeah. electrification policies, which is just so was, extraordinary. You know, I was just thinking, like, if people are listening and they're like, Oh God, I've got an SUV and I hadn't realised. Like, but but you know, I, this is our family car and we need it to go on holiday and we've got the kids and the dog and all that sort of thing. Like, an estate car doesn't have the same um, emissions as an SUV, is it? Is it better if you still? No, need to- no, much better, much better. I mean, you know, fundamentally, a shift away from cars. Yes, is yeah, required, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So. Um, you know, we, uh, my family owns an electric minivan. It's a Citroen Berlingo. It's those things that plumbers drive. Mm. It's still an embarrassingly large vehicle. We own it because I don't fly. So we do a lot of camping. Yeah, yeah. We've got in-laws in North Norfolk. You know, that's how I've justified it. Um, it doesn't do enough miles. So mm. we shouldn't really be owning this thing. You know, we live in London. Um, you know, my in-laws live somewhere that's got no public transport. What I'm going to do is put that car on a car sharing platform, a peer-to-peer car sharing platform, so that it's recovering its carbon debt faster, right? Because if you, typically a car just sits stationary outside of a house, private cars are are stationary about 95% of the time. They unbelievably poor uh, use of resources. Um, So car sharing is essential. And if you are someone who absolutely needs a car, for whatever reason, that is a really, really good way to kind of defray the carbon debt that you have accrued in buying it. Um, but, you know, we do all of our trips in town by e-bike or public transport. And um, my God, if you haven't tried an e-bike, uh, you need to go and try one. Because um, if you've never ridden um... one, it is mind-blowing. It's just, a, it's, it really is. It really, really is. And no, no evangelising can do it justice. You just need to go and give it a try. I can't, I can't, I'm kicking myself because I can't, I didn't bookmark the article, but there was something about, you know, it was talking about, yes, the rise in EVs has been amazing. The rise in e-bikes has been X number of yeah. times that and however many million there are worldwide and how it has completely like revolutionized things for uh, people in, in it, you know, in all kinds of different. Um, in all uh, kinds of different ways, yeah, in all yeah. kinds of different ways. You know, we have a, we have a project at the moment working with food delivery riders in London uh, to try to, one of the things that that project will be doing is working out how do we incentivize them to use e-bikes rather yeah. than petrol, petrol-driven uh, mopeds. So um, the SUV chapter of the book <laughs> is uh, is the question, how did they manage to get us to do this? I know, because and advertising is so it's, insidious it's, and it's so manipulative. It's a really big and... part of it. Yeah, it's a really, really big part of it. As I said, um, I've only sort of read the first chapter, and but 
what really struck i mean we spent a year buying nothing new that was like 10 years ago and that was my eco epiphany yeah. um and up until that point i'd never stopped and thought really about what i was buying other than where there might be a sale on or anything like that and 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 i think it just this um consumer culture that has built up and and this disposable society is so it feels so ingrained but it's relatively recent isn't it and it's all fueled by this horrendous advertising industry it really is so so, you know we've got a chapter on flights and we've got a chapter on SUVs because they are particularly egregious examples of how advertising has deliberately engineered us into very high carbon consumption behaviors and lifestyles and you know I mean the 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 S the SUV thing is uh, a really good example where there's is, there's no practical need that's mm. being being met by these vehicles. You know, most of the people who are buying them will never drive them off road. You know, m- yeah. most yeah, four wheel yeah. drive vehicles are never driven off road, but the four wheel drive capability adds a load of emissions to them. And um, you know, people are using these vehicles for things which they but SUVs could... can often not even have that four by four capability. They're just yeah yeah they just look that way. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They're just they're just whoppers. Mm. Um, but they did that because the car industry found that they could make a um, much bigger profit mm. per unit of sale. And of course, if you are a running a business, you will focus your productive capacity and your marketing spend on your profitable product lines mm. and not your unprofitable product lines. And that is why the Ford Fiesta was discontinued okay, yeah, yeah. after decades as the UK's most popular car. Yeah. Um, so Ford sort of liked to pretend that they discontinued it because consumers didn't want to buy it anymore. What they really mean is they didn't want to make it anymore. And they spent very large sums of money over the last decade persuading people that what they really want is to buy a enormous great SUV. Mm. So, you know, you can trace it. The trend towards buying these cars was prefigured by an enormous shift of the advertising market and spend of car manufacturers from their regular family cars to these ever larger vehicles. And then consequently, you know, we started to see this um, trend towards buying them, the consumer trend towards buying them. So this is they, those are just particularly um, clear and terrible examples, but actually more broadly, advertising is... It, it, this is what it exists to do. It exists to get people to buy things, right? It exists to drive consumption. It's about creating needs that people didn't have before mm. you did the advertising. And it's not good for us in all sorts of different ways. So, you know, it's terrible for the planet. And in fact, it's like, it's, you know, it's um, existentially, you know, there is an existential crisis for the advertising industry because it is set up to get people who already consume lots because they mainly target rich people mm. um you know to consume more yeah. when all the evidence is pointing to the need for us to consume less certainly at material level that's what needs to happen so less 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 resources less energy right that's what has to happen in rich nations like the uk and the advertising industry is set up to make us do the opposite But it's also the case that it messes with our heads. You know, it's designed to get inside our heads and change not just our behaviours, but actually the way that we see the world and the things that we value Mm -hmm. and how we relate to other people. And um, it's 
it activates um, extrinsic values mm. which lower our well-being. And it's so pervasive that it, it's the cultural water that we swim in, right? So it is most of the time invisible to most people. So you're not aware of it, mm. but it is affecting you. And most people will, most people tend to believe that even if they think advertising works, it doesn't work on them. Yes, yeah. You know, so mo- most people are like, ah, well, you know, I'm like, I'm a cynic, you know, I'm like this stuff that has no effect on me. I had this weird experience where I, I've been on two planes in the last 20 years. Um, one was on my honeymoon. Uh, our kids were very small. We took them to Costa Rica. Uh, so we spent the whole sort of summer in Costa Rica. Mm. And I had not been out of the country for years um, because of my cl- climate concerns. And uh, I had quite a lot of anxiety driving through San Jose from the airport. Um, you know, my kids were three and five. I had my whole family with me and not been out of the country for ages. So I, well, I was I was in a state of some anxiety and we passed the BMW showroom and the sight of the logo on the side of the showroom, I, I felt this wave of familiarity wow. and reassurance, comfort, safety. It triggered this sort of wave of feelings. And then a moment later, I was like, what just happened? Because I have never owned a BMW. I've never, to my knowledge, driven a BMW. I don't even know. Have I been in a BMW? I have no idea. At a conscious level, I have absolutely no positive associations with that brand. But clearly, somewhere deep inside Mm. my head, they have wired me to respond in this way to it. So um, this is, this is. It's changing us. It's cha- it changes who you know who we are as people, how we see the world, and how we relate to one another, and therefore it changes society. And it it does this in incredibly insidious ways. So children that are as young as two are brand aware. They can identify a whole range of brands, and not just brands, you know, not just toy brands like Duplo mm. or junk food like McDonald's, but they can literally identify you know brands of beer. <laughs> um car brands you know uh clothing brands nike um and by the time they're three between three and four they start to um peer pressure one another yeah to do brand conformity so they will start to judge one another based on the brands that they are using that they're wearing um and you know two-year-olds often can't read so that you, yeah. when you're talking about Kids can identify the logos of major global corporations before they are able to speak. Um, so this is like, you know, that's it's sort of obvious in kids. Um, but uh, for adults, most of the time, we are just, we, you know, we're not keyed in to be aware of it at a conscious level of how mm. we're being manipulated at an unconscious level. Um, so uh, there, there's a brilliant, the triple dip chicken thing, from uh, Bike Back, a uh, youth campaign group called Bike Back, they, they ran this experiment where they got a bunch of young people and they primed them. And what that means is they exposed and they targeted um, their social media channels and the taxis that they uh, took that day, uh, billboards, posters. Um, they even inserted ads to the radio station that was playing in the taxi. <laughs> Um, so they they kept hearing about triple dip chicken. Um, so in all these different ways, but not you know not at a conscious level. So I hadn't registered consciously. Yeah, yeah. They were took them to a restaurant and brought them the menu. And there's like fifty different things on the menu, and handed them an envelope and said, "Yeah, don't open this envelope yet." 
every single one of them chose triple dip chicken mm-hmm. off the menu. And then they open the envelope and inside it says triple dip chicken. And they're like, what? Mind blown. But of course, you know, th- these are just very, very well understood um, techniques that are being used on the rest of us all day long, every day. We are yeah. exposed to thousands of messages like this. Um, and it doesn't, you know, e- even if you're not consuming the product. So Red Bull is a brand that has uh, purposely cultivated an association with extreme sports. So they mm-hmm. they they fund Formula One, lots of things like that. Um, and a brilliant experiment was run where they got students to play a computer game that was driving a car. And in one version of the game, the car was unbranded. And in the other version of the game, the car was Red Bull branded. Now, there was no discussion about this. So they weren't kind of, you know, they weren't, it wasn't discussed at a conscious level. But the, the, the research subjects who played the game with the Red Bull branded car drove it faster and more recklessly. Oh, wow. And so they were, they were more likely to, uh, to, to score high or crash and burn yeah, the yeah. car. Um, and, you know, it was an incredibly consistent result. And that, and that is just because the brand associations yeah. are activating certain things inside the brains of these people. So um, there is a, there's some, you know, some brilliant quotes in the book from people in the advertising sector. You know, if an ad hasn't physically altered the brain of the person that yes, has encountered it, then it hasn't worked, right? Um, they're getting into our heads and they're just tinkering around in there and doing things that make us, um, that you know, that change us, yeah. uh, that fundamentally alter us. And th- it makes us unhappy. Yeah. So this is, this is one of the key things about it is that it's destroying the planet, but it's also just not good for us because um, it, it makes us much more social status aware and uh, much more materialistic. Mm. So being constantly exposed to this stuff just activates values in people which are ultimately harmful for mm. their well-being. Um, so curbs on advertising, which we think there's a very, very clear case for curbing exposure to advertising, certainly for the high carbon stuff. But curbs on advertising... Full stop. You know, if you were to end out of home advertising, like our partners in the um, our partners in the advertising campaign, Ad Free Cities, you know, they just campaigned to get rid of advertising from public, from the public realm. That will have a positive effect, not just for our climate change targets, but for just for ourselves, for 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 people's well being, and will improve by and being exposed that, to less um... of this stuff. Even having just read the first chapter, you give some examples of some cities where they've where they've done that, where they've removed billboards and and you know how how much pushback there was from that, but how there were actually really beneficial um, social impacts in that it sort of revealed the slum populations and things that were hidden behind the billboards up to that point, and so it meant that that more action was taken to help those more disadvantaged communities and stuff that you, that would you know if you'd said to me how can this benefit, I would never have come up with that. So there's a wonderful billboard in Bristol where our, the Abbey Cities crew are based. I know where I'm going for a book launch event tomorrow in St. Werbergs, which is the commission billboard in that it is no longer, um, it's no longer taking commercial marketing messages, 
But what it does is display community public art. So it just changes, it changes every few months, you know, and a new artwork goes up um, that's been created or chosen by the community. So there's loads of other things that we could be doing with the space that is currently taken up and space, physical space, space in our visual environment, but also space inside our Mm -hmm. heads um, that is currently taken up with commercial messaging. Um, Leo, I'm super aware of time, and you said you, you know, like we we we've already gone a couple of minutes over. Um, in terms of, I guess what listeners can do about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, so they can, where can they come and sort of support the advertising campaign? And obviously, there's a book to buy as well, and I, that feels so counter counterintuitive, doesn't it, to be promoting <laughs> yeah. uh, a book? Yes. I've had that criticism we're, we're, about we're selling a sustainability book. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, look, you can buy the book uh, from Pluto. It's actually available in lots of different bookshops now as well. Um, but you don't need to do that. Um, if you go to the badverts.org website, you will find calls to action on there. So one of the things, so we're aiming for national legislation. That's what we want to see happen. Like the tobacco ad ban, we'd like to see advertising for mm. fossil fuels and for intrinsically high carbon products and services outlawed in the context of a national drive to reduce emissions in line with our climate targets. Um, But we've obviously had very, we've had a series of very hostile governments to that sort of thing. So there's not been any prospect of doing it. But of course, much of the advertising to which we are exposed on a daily basis comes from other actors. This is not coming from national government. um, And many of them have net zero targets of their own. Many local authorities in the UK have declared climate emergencies and have set near-term targets for decarbonisation. And yet they have advertising policies that are not consistent with those goals. So, you know, a very good example is Transport for London. Um, So London has some track record here because it actually has a very transparent advertising policy. Transport for London answers to the mayor and TfL own and operate one of the biggest by value out of home advertising estates in the world that wow. is to say yeah so that's every tube carriage every yeah. tube station um you know the sides of buses yeah. bus stops uh train stations um billboards on the strategic road network you know these are all tfl assets and um they banned junk food advertising a few years ago Um, And they did that because the mayor of London has a food strategy, which says that we want to reduce childhood obesity. And um, they since they banned junk food ads on the TfL estate, um, a study has found that uh, families in London are households are consuming a thousand fewer calories. I think, yeah, I think that's I think that's per week. It's not per day, but, you know, it's like really substantial. Yeah. It really has worked. So they did it explicitly to align with the mayor's got a food strategy. Mm. It says this. And so we, our advertising policy at TfL should help to deliver the food strategy. Now, of course, the mayor of London also has some very stretching climate change and transport strategies, environment, environment strategies, you know which the advertising policy that TfL operates is not aligned with at the moment. And so that is a 
important target for the campaign. But of course, up and down the country, you've got local authorities that are operating public transport networks or owning billboards by the sides of roads on roundabouts and so on. Lots of local authorities have taken moves. So Somerset is a good example. Now, so far, Somerset's policy only affects roundabouts. Um, but when their bus stop uh, contract comes up soon, the concession comes up, it will then affect all of the bus wow. stops in Somerset as well. And they will not anymore be showing ads for fossil fuel companies or cars and flights or internal combustion engine cars and flights. So um, there are lots of different targets for this. Also media outlets. You know, many, many of us get our news from outlets that are certainly outwardly committed to doing something about climate change. Um, but one of the very jarring experiences of reading about our work being covered in The Guardian is frequently that the algorithm has placed an ad for an SUV in the middle yes. of it or, um, you know, an ad for flights. It happens an awful lot because the robots are not that smart yet. You know, they they recognise that the article is about a related topic. And so they show you an ad that is related to that topic, uh, even if the article is saying this is a disaster. Do this thing, yeah. stuff. <laughs> um, so, you know, The Guardian is a good example. They banned fossil fuel ads uh, a few years ago, but they haven't banned ads for... Um, flights and cars and mm -hmm. of course in fact fossil fuel companies do not need to advertise their wares because all they need if that they, they, what they need is for you to buy an suv and once mm. you've done that you will buy fossil fuels every day yeah, yeah. for the rest of your life you know or as long as you carry on owning that suv so it's a bit mealy mouth what the guardian has done um you know their position was we can't take the hit now we don't know enough about the about about what share of their advertising revenue was coming from very high carbon products and services but because tfl is uh, very transparent about this stuff we did a bit of analysis and we reckon it's about four percent of their advertising revenue okay. is so that's those are high carbon transport cat yeah. categories so we're talking about basically cars and flights 24 percent Mm. And, you know, it's not that you would forego all of that revenue because there are probably other sectors, you know. I'm sure there's loads of other shit we can sell be... you on TFL. <laughs> exactly. That is not as bad for the yes. environment. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So, yeah. so there's some really kind of, there's some really basic stuff that actually at every tier um, is, is worth doing. So yeah. I know I'm going up to Edinburgh next week. Edinburgh City Council will be discussing whether they could adopt uh, an ad. A, a climate-friendly advertising policy in January. Um, so these are kind of live conversations everywhere that has declared a climate emergency and has professed a uh, an intention to kind of support the delivery of it these It genuinely never occurred to me that local authorities would have advertising policies. Like we've did a, a recent episode with um, uh, the Climate Emergency UK who've done the um, Climate Council scorecards and things yeah. and, and talking about the influence that local authorities can have there and this was just an area that just had never even occurred to me so yeah wow like there's a, there's another letter written <laughs> so we have a, we have a right to counsel at all on the website which will just go and find your local counselors mm. and um, and you can write to them directly it's very very easy to use so that is a great first step um, amazing yeah fabulous um so yeah go and visit the badverts.org did you say i'll link to it That's in the show notes yeah um and uh if you're looking for a bit of armchair activism write to your um local authority write to your local councillor um any other quick tips before we wrap um up? no i think that will probably you know that that will probably do i uh i don't know 
I should. Our publishers will want me to remind you that there is a book that you can read about. <laughs> um, I'll post the link to as, that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And as as, as Jeremy Vine kindly um, read the book on his summer holidays this year, oh. and he gave us an endorsement, which is very sweet of him. And you know, his quote on the back is like, "Since they can't be an advertising campaign for this book, we all have to tell our friends about do it, it. Do so, it for uh, them. Yeah. 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 yeah Amazing." Great. Um, thank you, Leo, and, and thank you for um we've we've gone over the time that we agreed, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all. like all the work that you're doing. As I said, um it's not just this, is it? It's all the amazing stuff that um possible is doing as well. And um you're a, a shining example of when people say, Can one person make a difference? Like one person can't make a difference. Oh yeah, I think I think actually they can. Um so thank you. <laughs> thank you're you doing so amazing much, stuff. Jenna. I really appreciate that. And a shout out to my co-author, Andrew Sims. Otherwise, uh, you know, I'll, I'll come away and feel bad. Be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you. Goodness me. How are you doing after that? Brain fried just a little teeny bit? Yeah, mine too. It's, oh, it's quite overwhelming, isn't it, when you start to really stop and think about the power of advertising and, um, yeah, what it's what it's trying to get us to do and the impacts that that's having on the planet. But I love that there were some real kind of quite clear calls to action there in that. So there's the um, frequent flyer levy to go and sign. And I really, you can probably tell from the interview, was like blown away by this idea that like our local authorities have advertising policies and things. So that's a really um, clear call to action, isn't it? To, To email our local authorities and ask them, especially if they have already declared a climate emergency, to ask them if they're looking to bring their advertising policies in line with that and to give those examples of the uh, councils that are already doing that. So I would love to hear from you, um, A, your thoughts on the podcast uh, and on this interview, but uh, especially um, I would love to hear if it's inspired you to go and to email your local authority and to uh, especially to hear what they say in response. So please do drop me an email if you do do that. Uh, my email um, hopefully you're all familiar now, is jen at sustainableish.co.uk um, or do just come and find me on social media. I'm at sustainableish and let me know. Okay, so today's or this week's good news section. So first up, a story from Positive News that the USA finally agrees to quit coal. As one of the world's biggest coal consumers, On Saturday, the USA formally committed to quitting the dirtiest of all the fossil fuels, which is coal. This announcement came at COP28, where the US signed up to the powering past coal alliance, committing the world's second biggest polluter to building no new coal plants and phasing out existing plants. Closer to home and another story from Positive News is that Wales have put bugs on the map. In a world first, Wales has mapped its most important insect sites, a move which environmentalists hope will be a vital first step in boosting bug numbers, which is so important. There has been a dramatic plunge in insect numbers, which is hugely alarming as they are so hugely important, really absolutely underpinning life on Earth, and there really is an urgent need to protect them. So the network that has been created of 17 important invertebrate areas, IIAs, uh, have been identified by the charity Bug Life, who are doing incredible work. The sites are home to threatened species, including the blue ground beetle, 
the glutinous snail, what a cool name, and the fen raft spider, which is Britain's largest arachnid. So well done, Wales. And even closer to home, well, for me anyway, <laughs> I spent Monday in Western Supermare um, in the southwest of the of England with 200 other people at the biggest ever in-person carbon literacy training day. The day was organised by North Somerset Council and I have to say I was absolutely blown away, not only by their ambition to do it, but also by their ability to pull it off. I was asked to do a guest speaker slot, which was amazing because I could just rock up, do my bit and then sit back and observe and didn't have any of the stresses of the organisation of the day. So hats off to those who did. But it was genuinely heartwarming is probably the right word to see so many people in one place from all kinds of different businesses and organisations of all different sizes gathered together to learn and to take action. And this training was part of an even wider Carbon Literacy Action Day organised by the Carbon Literacy Project themselves, which saw over a thousand people taking part in carbon literacy training on one day all around the world. It was genuinely incredible to be a part of. Massive congratulations and thanks to everybody involved in organising. And it was such a reminder that there are so many people and businesses out there wanting to take action, not only wanting to take action, but but learning about what they need to do and then uh, putting the uh, pledges and the actions in place to really make that happen, to reduce their emissions and really be part of the solution. So a huge thank you again and well done to everybody involved in that one. Yay! Right then, that's it from me for another week. Apologies again for the late running of the podcast this week, but I hope it was worth the wait. As ever, I would love to hear your thoughts on the interview and I would also love to hear your good sustainable-ish news too. So do drop me an email, jen at sustainable-ish.co.uk to let me know what you've been up to and any wins, big or small, so I can celebrate with you. And of course... <laughs> I cannot leave. I think it's a legal obligation. I cannot leave without saying, please do share the podcast with your friends and family if you think they'd like it. And please do leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts, much like Huffle Joe, what an awesome username, on iTunes who said, every episode is an inspiration. A cheerfully presented, optimistic podcast about the importance of individual actions in combating the climate crisis. Thank you so much for that, Huffle Joe. Absolutely put a big smile on my face seeing that one. And thank you for listening. Have a great week and I will catch you next time. Take care.